this uh, today, and we appreciated so much your pastor's message this morning. And I hope that what we are doing tonight will complement that and uh, take it out. And we will conclude this Sunday by saying it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. Several years ago, I got an idea that uh, uh, was kind of passed along, and I got some other ideas, and I started working them together, and I thought, uh, I'd like to develop what I call a sermon and song service. And uh, rather than having the song service here followed by the preaching time, I thought, uh, could it be possible we take the, the preaching time and integrate it all along the way with, with some of the songs that we sing from our hymn book? Uh, nobody would ever get tired and weary of it. Uh, if, if everybody was starting to get a little weary of the service, things would change very, very fast, and we'd be on to the, the next segment. Because I don't know how good of a musician or how good of a preacher I am, but maybe if you get tired of one thing, we'll move on quickly to the next segment. So we're going to have a uh, mix of uh, old-fashioned inspiration tonight, a little bit old-fashioned revival meeting mixed in with uh, the History Channel sprinkled over with some dramatization of the stories behind the familiar gospel songs that we sing. Tonight's material is uh, what I call is anything too hard for the Lord, and we will come back to that theme very often, but Betty and I would like to begin by playing our brass instruments. I also find that uh, people don't know the hymns like they, they once did, so I'm able to do something which I wouldn't do if I was in a church as a church music director all the time, but for a special occasion like this, I can give the words on the screen as we sing them, and hopefully the whole service tonight will be a blessing to you and will cause you to appreciate even more the, the Word of God and the songs that we have in our hymn book. We'd like to play uh, Isaac Watts' uh, great, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. Thank you. 
As I take you into the service of, is there anything too hard for the Lord? I begin with this passage of scripture from the book of Genesis. When God put out not only a very difficult proposal to Abraham and Sarah, but practically an absolutely impossible situation. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and well-stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Uh, The problem was she was old enough to be a great-grandmother, and yet they had no children yet. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself. I would, too, if I were Sarah, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being also old also? God, you don't know. I've got this old guy for husband, too. We're too old to be parents. And the Lord said unto Abraham, Well, wherefore did Sarah laugh? God often gets the last laugh in, folks, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child which am old? And why, why should you even such a thing? Don't you know who I am speaking to you? In fact, God said, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Well, I think the laughter kind of simmered down there and the little discussion quit. And God came back a few verses later by saying, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to pull your leg, Abraham and Sarah. What I have said, the judge of all the earth is that Sarah shall have a son. My. And so we ask ourselves this question throughout the evening service. Is anything too hard for the Lord? There are two foundational promises that we can all claim as we enter into this subject here tonight. And every one of us can claim these uh, preliminary promises that are foundational to everything else. Uh, We can ask wisdom from God. Have you ever faced a difficult situation and you flat out just didn't know what to do? That doesn't mean you can't do anything at that point, folks. There is something you can do. You can go to God and start asking for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. And abradeth not, and what? It shall be given him. And we can all go to God in times in which we don't have the answers, but we can all ask God for wisdom and get started down the path of knowing God's will. Not only can we ask wisdom from God, but we can ask for power of the Holy Ghost. God wants us to have the power of the Holy Ghost. He wants us to, uh, God wants to do mighty things in and through us. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And while we may not know right, right immediately what the answer is to, our, to life's most difficult and possible situations, we can ask the heavenly Father for the presence and the infilling and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to them that 
ask him. And so every one of us can ask for wisdom from God and the power of the Holy Spirit. There are five assurances that I would like to count forth this evening. You may want to jot these down. You may not need these tonight, but you will probably need them tomorrow morning. Five assurances that God gives us as we wonder, can God do the impossible in and through us? Here's assurance number one. There is no promise too hard for God to fulfill. If God could promise Abraham and Sarah that they would have their own child by age 100, (laughs) can we think of too many things that are equal to that? In fact, did not God make the universe? Um, To me, that's an impossibility. How do you make something out of nothing? How do you place everything instantaneously in the universe when it's so far away? I was sitting in a Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher said this, and it's got me to thinking ever since. And that is, God is not limited to his universe God is not limited to his own creation. God is bigger than the universe. So therefore, I don't even have to put God in my little world to see God do his work. God is outside my world. And there is no promise too hard for God to fulfill. I can challenge God. I may come across very difficult life situations, but none of them are going to outdo the capabilities of God. The promises of God have already been stated in his word. And as we read his word, he's made many, many promises to many, many people. Of course, he made this promise to Abraham and Sarah. Now, that doesn't mean that that particular promise is going to be true in our lives, folks, when we get to be 100 years of age and we've got to start changing diapers all over again. But I can say this, that somebody said, God sometimes says things in the Bible that he did not say directly to me. But God never said one word in the Bible that he did not say for me. And while the exact promise that God gave to Abraham and Sarah may not apply to Paul Hiscock, The demonstration of his power is applicable to me, and I can say that I have a God that can do that for Abraham and Sarah, and I also have a God that could do other great wonders for Paul Hiscock. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I will not ask for a raise of hands, but are there people here tonight that you are in despair, you are in discouragement over a life situation? Are you being pressed beyond measure? Are you finding yourself without some answers? Are demands being put upon you that you don't see any way out of? But the Bible says that he has given us his word and he has given us his promise that we might have hope. Folks, there is hope in the Lord. And if you don't have it, we're not done with the service yet. 
Philippians 4.13. Claim this, folks. Sit on it. Write it upon the tables of your heart. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. We need to ask ourselves this reoccurring question tonight. I will ask the question, and I would like you from Scripture to give the answer. Don't be anybody timid. Read it out. I hope that as we repeat this several times tonight, each time your faith has grown, your courage has gotten stronger, your trust in the Lord has grown. But the question we pose tonight is, is anything too hard for the Lord? And congregation, the answer is, would you read it together? Not bad, but there's room for improvement here as we work along. I'd like to take you to Point Alderton, Massachusetts, where we find a very difficult situation. And Point Alderton is a place where uh, years ago ships would bring in the cargo from, great, uh, from Europe. And here's how it looks today. But back in the days of yore, it was a very rough coastline. There were rocks out there. And on those rocks, other ships would wreck. And out there in the waters were not only the rocks, but the wrecked ships of, uh, of passages before. And it was getting to be a very dangerous place as the storms off the Atlantic would brew up very, very quickly. And the ships were trying to bring in the cargo into this port and they'd find themselves in great peril and as they were trying to navigate through the wreckage out there in the water and finally be uh, anchored near the, 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 uh, the land. Uh, storms would come up very, very quickly and uh, sailors' lives were in peril out there and uh, about this time, some men got together and decided to form a life-saving station and train some men to go out into the angry waters and save the crews whose lives were in peril out there in the ocean. And the life-saving station at Point Alderton, Massachusetts, became the forerunner of our U.S. Coast Guard. That's where it started. The man behind it all was... Uh, fellow by the name of Captain Joshua James. You can see that he's highly decorated, and time does not allow us tonight to go through the, the biography of his life. Might make a nice school assignment for some of you young people sometime. He's credited with saving over 800 people himself. He is still considered to be the world's most celebrated personal life saver. But I find the last point most interesting. He's the one person that Congress passed a special law concerning lifting the mandatory retirement age so that he could continue to serve his country in such a noble fashion. Here is some of his crew and uh, some of the equipment that they had in those days, just simple things that they had and looks rather strange, but that was their speedy get out there and get them into the ocean. And they would train those men and get their equipment together and, and be ready for when the next uh, tragedy would happen, the next storm would come up, the next ship would wreck out there, that they would be ready to launch out into the angry waves and save the sailors who were going down with their ship. Well, a terrible storm came up. It was called the Portland Gale. It was written up in the, the um, uh, newspapers of the day, and it said in part, the crew and their legendary leader made heroic rescues during the Portland Gale. Without the selfless efforts of the lifesavers, the death toll from this storm surely would have been much higher. 
The Point Allerton crew rescued 20 people from six vessels during the storm, despite seas so high that their surf boats could not be launched from the beaches. A few days later, um, Captain Joshua James decided to have a public demonstration before the people of the community and show them his life-saving equipment, introduce his heroic life-saving crew to them, and show the community the techniques that they used during the Portland Gale to save those 20 sailors. And I hope this uh, image before you kind of burns itself into your memory. I hope you remember this. For there in the dark uniform is the good Captain Joshua James, and surrounding him is his crew of life-saving men. Along with the simple um, equipment that they had in those days, uh, starting at the lower left, it looks like they have a lantern. Maybe some of you recognize this better than I. Uh, I I see some rope. I see perhaps a cannon to shoot the rope out. I see some lanterns, a buoy. I see some netting and, uh, of course, a pail of water, some flares, and maybe some other things in that picture that some of you may, may recognize. But the, the greatest asset that was there was the, the, the uh, courage that these men had to go out into the choppy waters and the terrible storms and put their lives at risk so that others would be free from death. During that public demonstration, there was a, a new pastor in the area named Pastor Edwin Euford. And he was out there in the crowd watching this public demonstration by Captain Joshua James. As he uh, watched the, 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 uh, the, the illustrations and the explanations of how they did it, uh, his mind was taken to some of the sermons and some of the messages that he preached. And he left the demonstration, started walking to his own home, and started combining some of those things that he saw from, with the uh, the scripture promises that he he had. And he started to combine in his mind the illustration of what he saw with our efforts that we ought to have in taking on very difficult situations sometimes, though, in reaching other people for Christ because, folks, it is a risk. We may get embarrassed. We may have the door shut on us. We may have uh, a conversation shut down. People may not be interested in hearing the gospel. There is a risk. We may be fun of by people we work with. Well, I'm being a little facetious here. But folks, if uh, Pastor Edwin Euford and Captain Joshua James can take the risk, uh, we have also a risk to take to reach, reach people for Christ. On the way home, Pastor Edwin Euford uh, combined those two elements. By the time he had gotten home, he had written this song out in his mind. Throughout the lifeline, across the dark wave, there is a brother whom someone should save. Somebody's brother who, oh, who then will dare to throw out the lifeline his peril to share. Perhaps because of the imagery, the song is kind of falling out of some of our hymn books today, but how many know and remember this song? All those over whatever it is, age of you. Okay, very good. Come on up, ma'am. Let's get them singing it, all right? Are you ready to sing? Three of you, all right? I told you this is sing-spiration. Let's stand up. Let's see if you can see it. I'll give you the words, all right? 
We're off the lifeline. If you don't know it, you'll catch on real fast. All right, here we go. Sing it together with me now. I don't know whether Captain Joshua James was a believer in the Lord or not. He certainly was a noble man, certainly was a hero, and he's an interesting life to, to read upon. But I do know this, that at the, the bottom of his tombstone is a Bible verse. And perhaps uh, as you ponder over this, you'll get a new appreciation of what the effort it takes for us to win souls for Christ. For the verse that's on the bottom of his tombstone is John chapter 15, verse 13, which says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I come back to our theme of the evening, Is Anything Too Hard for the Lord? And I come up to our second assurance here tonight. There is no prayer too hard for God to answer. Do you think Moses was praying as he led the two and a half million Israelites up to the Red Sea? (laughs) Do you think... uh, Paul and Silas were praying in the prison. They sure were in Acts, at midnight even. And we uh, limit God by thinking God is not able to answer my prayers, so therefore I'm going to put kind of a governor on how much I pray because God's kind of too busy. He's only got so much capability. And I don't want to bother God any more than anybody else. And for that, he's probably not going to answer it anyway, so... There is no prayer too hard for God to answer. And I don't know about you, but folks, my, the last some years, my, my, uh, my faith has been stretched to realize that I'm the one that's putting the limitation on God. But really, there is no limit. Someone once said that when God is going to do something wonderful, he starts with a difficulty. But when God is going to do something miraculous, he starts with an impossibility. And we often pray for difficult things, but folks, do we pray for impossible things? Do we pray for our God to do things that nobody else can do but God? That only God and God alone can get the glory because humans haven't contrived it at all. And we have claimed the promises of prayer requests that are absolutely impossible. Jeremiah 33 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came into Jeremiah the second time while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it, to establish it. The Lord is his name, and don't we all love this verse? Call upon unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And God wants us to show things that he hasn't turned the page on yet. And he wants to turn the page and show us that he is able to do far above, exceedingly beyond what we could ever ask or think. Jesus said, again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that ye shall ask, it shall be done of them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. 
Is that not cause enough for every one of us to want to be at a prayer meeting? I was struck this morning with the, the thoughts that the pastor had concerning our, you know, we come in with our little prayer lists. But boy, we get praying in the Spirit, we start praying for things that aren't on the prayer list, and we start praying for situations that uh, are just very, very difficult. And our hearts are drawn to them, and sometimes we show forth our lack of congregation can I say, spiritual intimacy because we don't want to share the burdens and the concerns that we have with other people. and We, we, we go to the safe list. We go to the prayer list. And that's fine. But, you know, I think I really believe the greatest prayer requests that we have are the ones that we keep within our own hearts and we don't put on the list. But what a blessed promise it is that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. In all things, whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. Uh, last fall, we were driving our van uh, through Wisconsin on the way to uh, Wayland, Missouri. And just as we drove into the parking lot, the um, transmission blew. And uh, mechanics looked at it and said, well, Paul, we think it'll get you home. Just stop every once in a while. Check the fluid, put more fluid in it. So we did, we did, we did. But my van is getting well in years, and, you know, we're doing a fair amount of traveling, and you want something that's a little bit dependable. And um, by the time the prices started coming back on the repair of the van, the cost of the repair of the van was more than the van was itself. And, you know, then you've got to start making a decision. You men know how that works. What do you do? I'm now throwing good money after bad, as they say. And so I told the mechanic, he said, well, let me think about it. Let me pray about it through the, the weekend. I'll call you at Monday morning, okay? Uh, Saturday night, I got a call from um, a man. He said, we've got four vehicles. One of them is a, a 2004 Toyota van with 70,000 miles on it. The pedal didn't stick. He says, if you want it, you can have it. It's out there in the parking lot. And our ministry continues. But you see, the van, was, folks, was already provided before I had the need. Because God, in his all knowledge, knows what I'm going to be needing this next week and beyond. And so for the second time tonight, we've got to ask this question, congregation. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is, There is nothing too hard for thee. It's better. Thomas Chisholm is an interesting hymn writer. I often point this photograph out to young people because he looks like some really old codger that is just barely hanging on in life. And it appears, teenagers, that our hymns were written by a bunch of old people, and they're only for old people. But, you know, T.O. Chisholm was a teenager, too, 
and he wrote most of his songs when he was younger. It's just that photography hadn't come along to capture the images of some of these hymn writers that we have. It just appears that way. But I hope many of you young people will, will grow up and rise up and become uh, the song, songwriters to write some of the songs that T.O. Chisholm wrote. He was born in Little Log Cabin in Franklin, Kentucky, extreme south central uh, in Kentucky. And I'll take you near to where he was, um, uh, to where he lived. And if you get on I-65 uh, from, well, it comes down from Michigan, down through Indiana, through Indianapolis, down through Nashville, Tennessee, all the way. If you keep on going and you, you're at the last exit in Kentucky before you go to Tennessee, get off there. If you're ever down there, get off the road there. And you'll come to this little tourist information place. And I'm, I'm, this guy that looks like me is standing beside this sign. I'll zoom in a little bit closer. And it says it was the birthplace of T.O. Chisholm. Interesting, a state sign would say this, don't you think? Little details of his life. I got a little more hymn history from the people in there. It's very interesting. Uh, some of his family are, are quite well descended now. But some of his family are, are still there. But Thomas Chisholm... Uh, lost his mother when he was age 25, and he started to ponder over his own soul, wondering what would happen to him when he would die. A couple of years later, he came under the preaching of the Methodist preacher Henry Clay Morrison, and, and Teochism walked the aisle and became a child of God, and his life was forever changed. He started to write songs uh, of the Lord, including Living for Jesus, I Want to Be Like Thee, Oh, to Be Like Thee, and so many other really heart-tugging and moving and very, very singable songs that we still find in our hymn book. Back in the year uh, 1923, his, uh, he was going through some times of testing. He didn't have a whole lot of funds, and he found himself with more month at the end of the money. You know how that goes? And he was reading through the book of Lamentations and came across this verse. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. And then this phrase, great is thy faithfulness. But later on he wrote concerning that time, and I remember that time he was reading through Lamentations, and he said, My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years which have, has followed me on until now. But although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God, and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care for which I am filled with astonishing greatness. Many times he came into his life and he just was without any funds because he had to realize the truth of the song that he had written, All I've needed thy hand hath provided. And it was during that low time in his life that he wrote the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Thank you. 
Assurance number three. There is no place where God cannot work. We think that God has to work in our vicinity because I'm the one doing his work. Are you aware that God is at work all over planet Earth doing his work and he's in places that we are not aware of? He is in places that we are not at? And there's no situation where God cannot do his work. God can do his work in the bottom of a coal mine, and God could do his work in a high-flying jet airplane. God could do his work in an expressway. God could do his work in the church congregational Sunday night service. I'm glad for that because not everybody is here tonight, but there's still people I want God to do his work in. And it gives me great hope that God is going to deal with the lives of other people even though that I am not in their presence and they're not around me and I don't even have any uh, influence on their lives. But God is greater than me. And he doesn't really need me. I'm glad for God to use me and I want God to use me, but God doesn't have to have just me to do his work. So therefore, there is no place where God cannot work. All of us can find ourselves in difficult situations. Gideon did, Abraham did, and certainly other people in the Bible did, including Moses. Paul certainly did. And we can find ourselves in difficult situations. But just because we find ourselves in difficult situations, folks, doesn't always mean that uh, God's hand of judgment is upon us. And sometimes we find ourselves in a difficult situation. We do go through this time of soul-searching, like, God, have I lost your blessing? Have I done something wrong? Are you trying to punish me? Are you trying to get my attention? And we kind of go through this. But, folks, I want you to know that sometimes that is the case, but sometimes that is also not the case. And if you've done a time of soul-searching and your heart is clean before God, it may be that God is simply trying to show his wonderful power in your life and in the lives of others. And God wants to set up and do something that is very difficult in answer to prayer. And do it on your behalf so that you can rise up and praise God from whom all blessings flow. Everyone also faces discouragements. These certainly men certainly did. Things weren't going their way. They couldn't get it to happen fast enough. Abraham tried to contrive God's will and finagle it. Uh, Moses got upset and got angry. Um, Paul had his uh, 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 thorn in the flesh and couldn't get rid of it. And we all face our times of discouragements. And there's going to be some things in life that aren't going to get any better till we get to heaven. But you know, God can still give us the victory in the meantime, and we can still sing victory in Jesus beneath a cleansing flood. Psalm 37 says, Though that in the meantime, we need to commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Psalm 37 says, And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. But we are told this in Psalm 37, rest in the Lord. Folks, sometimes the thing to do is to do nothing but to rest in the Lord. Put the anxiety aside, the anxiousness, the struggles, the frets, the worries, the hand-wringing, the headaches, 
And sometimes the thing to do is to do nothing. But resting in the Lord is doing something. That's what we ought to be doing. Wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Just because the world ungodly people seem to be prospering and things to be going well for them, folks, doesn't mean that God is not concerned for us. Just wait. And God in his own way, in his own timing, is going to... uh, Bring the answers to our prayers. And so for the third time tonight, we ask ourselves this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Congregation, the answer is... There is nothing too hard for me. As I would tell hymn stories, there's, there's one hymn story that people would always ask me, Paul, aren't you going to tell this particular hymn story? And I always avoided it because, number one, it was such a common hymn story, but then I found that people were kind of not getting the story quite right anyway. But uh, during the last few years, some more things have come to light concerning the story, so I thought I'd I'd work the story back in. And if you've never heard the story before, you need to know this story. And if you've heard parts of it before, I hope to give you a little bit more of of the details of it, although there's much more. And I think I have all of Earth's um, documentation on this by now. Horatio and Anna Spafford were... uh, a couple that lived in the great city of Chicago, Illinois. He was a personal friend of Dwight L. Moody, and Moody would often have Mr. Spafford give his life testimony in his great meetings of many, many years ago. And they had uh, uh, some children born. They also had some sons. But I'm just putting these four daughters up, Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta. And as the story about these four girls in which our next uh, segment surrounds about, because uh, this family... <clears throat> lived in this home, in this, uh, this is a photograph of their home on the north side of Chicago many, many years ago. But a tragedy came in the city of Chicago in October of 1871, and if you know your history, it was, it was the Great Chicago Fire. The Great Chicago Fire took down the Spafford home along with thousands of other homes, uh, businesses, livelihoods, uh, people died in the fire, in the, the Great Chicago Fire, and it's a, quite, a, quite a read-up. And if you want some, um, some moving stories to read, read upon the Chicago Fire. Well, it devastated Horatio Spafford's life work and, because, you see, he was a real estate developer. He was also a lawyer. And because of the fire, it just stopped all of his work. There was no real estate anymore of any value. And the best thing he'd do was just to... Uh, pick up the pieces, pack his bags, and he booked passage for his family on a brand new uh, French ocean liner, kind of get away from it all. Remember, he was very wealthy, unusual, wealthy Christian businessman. Uh, He booked passage on this ship just to kind of get away from it all and take an extended European vacation. This is a colorized photograph of the ship that they were on. It was a converted... um, German ship, if I remember right. This was the days before radar and the days before the electric light bulb was invented. And this ship was way out into the Atlantic. In fact, it it had crossed over halfway on its uh, passage to uh, Europe. I left out one important detail that we need to understand, that Mr. Spafford was not able to go because a last-minute business detail arose. So on board this ship was Mr. Spafford's wife, and those four daughters. At 2.15 in the morning, pitch black, no radar, no electric lights, no beacons, 
An English sailing vessel rammed the side of this French ocean liner. Startled everybody, and everybody got out of their cabins, including uh, Anna Spafford and the four girls. Only had enough time to figure out that their ship was going down, and within 15 minutes, the ship slid into the water beneath everyone, and everybody found themselves at 2.30 in the morning swimming for their life in the cold North Atlantic. One by one, the four Spafford girls succumbed to the cold waters and drowned into the waters. Mrs. Spafford was found floating unconscious, pulled aboard the English sailing vessel by one of the English sailors, taken on board with the remaining people to Wales. When they got to Wales, Mrs. Spafford telegraphed a message back to her husband in Chicago. By now he heard about the tragedy at sea. Remember, this is the days before Internet, cell phones, telephones. All there was was North Atlantic cable. The photograph that I'm going to show you next is uh, what I call the probably the holy grail of all hymn history. A few years ago, the Spafford family scrapbook was rediscovered. And in it were pictures of the family, some of them I've already shown you. And in it was the, uh, the actual telegraph message that Mr. Spafford received. This material is now held at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. I've uh, emailed them, and they said I could get in to see it, but I could not take any pictures. Well, I hope to get over there someday, and I would love to, to lay my eyes on this document. On the front over here, you see uh, Spafford, Chicago, 159 LaSalle Street is the address of the Spafford home. There are several things that are here, but the most significant part of the whole message is this. The first two words, you read them? The saved alone. Therefore, Mr. Spafford understood that Mrs. Spafford, who signed, well, she didn't sign this, but she sent the message. She was saved, but not the girls. Mr. Spafford immediately, as fast as he could, got on another ship and started heading over to Wales to catch up with his grieving wife. That is a picture of Mr. Spafford. And as they got near the the place where the ship went down, the captain pulled Mr. Spafford aside. And Mr. Spafford wrote sometime later in his memoirs his memories of that moment. On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down in mid-ocean, the water three miles deep. But I did not think of our dear ones there. They are safe folded, the dear lambs, and there before very long shall we be too. In the meantime, thanks to God, we have an opportunity to serve and praise him for his love and mercy to us and ours. And then he quotes the scripture verse, I will praise him while I have my being. May we each one arise, leave all, and follow him. Do you think not that the Spaffers were facing a most difficult 
time and situation in their lives. Mr. Spafford went back to his quarters on the, the ship that he was in, and he pulled out a blank piece of, of uh, motel stationery. This is a photograph of the actual document that he wrote in the Atlantic Ocean. It was blank when he started it. But he started to write his uh, hard attitude and testimony during that difficult time on that piece of paper. And I don't know whether you can see it or not. This document is supposed to be hanging on the wall in a Jerusalem hotel. But I'll help you a little bit. He begins by saying, when peace, like a river, attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, and you know the next phrase, don't you? As well, as well with my soul. Do we not need the peace of God in the midst of life's storms? He actually wrote five verses. and It was just a few years ago that somebody took the document out of his frame and flipped it over and found a fifth verse on the flip side, the back side. And actually the fourth verse that we sing is, is only the fourth out of five verses. But you know, just as well, who can beat the last verse, folks? And so we sing it as the triumphant last verse. Can we stand and sing it? All right. I'll give you the words. It is well with my soul. So you stay tuned. A pastor's going to come. I get to sit down for a minute, all right, catch my wind. And uh, then during the offering, we're going to play. From here on, we're going to play some songs on what we call hand chimes. Uh, we really do. Um, I said, can we open the back? All right, there we go. Thanks, folks. Hang in there, all right? Well, here's, he's our maintenance man in more ways than one, isn't he? Right. Oh, that'll, that'll help, too. All right, get some cross ventilation. Well, assurance number four, okay? There is no person too hard for God to change. And God can save the hardenest criminal with the most cultured person there is, but everyone needs to come to the same foot of the cross. The ground is level at, at the cross. Uh, the Holy Spirit is able to work in places where we cannot be. It's entirely wonderful to pray for somebody that's not here tonight. Because God will do his work, as we mentioned beforehand. The Holy Spirit is able to work in situations that we cannot create. Are, are we not very good at saying, you know, if, if God would just allow this to happen, I've got the plan all figured out for God. I'm going to make it easy for God. And we, in our minds, we kind of formulate this, this, this solution for God and his problem. But, you know, God knows the events and the circumstances. He knows things we're really at. He knows the hearts of people. He knows where things are going. God knows things that ought to be put on the table that we don't know. And he's able to work in any situation beyond the facts and the, that we have at hand. But the Holy Spirit is also able to work in ways that we are not aware. Have you ever met somebody that you were just absolutely... Sh- 
surprised to find out that they had gotten saved some years ago and you didn't know it? And you try to hide your shock over the matter? But then you kind of pull yourself together and say, that's wonderful. Wow. God saved you from your sin and nobody knew it over here. So we ask ourselves for the fourth time tonight, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is, I take us tonight to tell you the story behind a Louisa Steed. Uh, you've never heard of Louisa Steed. I don't have any photographs or sketches of Louisa Steed, so I will allow these, this silhouette to take her place in our mind's imagination. She wanted to become a missionary, uh, but ill health prevented her from doing such, and um, so she did something else. She instead got married. Okay? And I don't even know her husband's name, so I just assume he's Mr. Steed. So I call him Mr. Steed. They were married, though, in the year 1875. And a lot of questions I have here, but I'm going to tell you what I do know about her life. She and her husband, and by now their three-year-old daughter, were out having a family vacation on Long Island Sound, walking along the beaches, enjoying the fresh air in those days uh, with her three-year-old daughter. As they were walking along... Uh, the beaches there of Long Island Sound, off in the distance, they started hearing some screams and cries and, and some shrieks and so forth, some calls for help. And they got a little closer and realized there was a boy out in the water drowning, being pulled under the water. Mr. Steed impulsively jumped out into the water to save the young boy from drowning. But tragedy upon tragedies, instead of Mr. Steed saving the young boy from drowning, he himself was also pulled under the water with the young fella, and they both drowned right in front of Mrs. Steed and their three-year-old daughter. What started out as a nice family walk ended up an irreversible tragedy. And I'm sure that Mrs. Steed had a lot of questions that all began with this. Why did this have to happen? Why, Lord, couldn't we have been someplace else today? Why couldn't it have rained like it does in Iowa, you know? <laughs> Why, Lord, uh, were this boy's parents not around? Why didn't somebody else step up to help this young fellow? Why did it have to be my husband? Why, Lord, couldn't you have redirected our paths someplace else? Why did this have to happen to us? Last time we were here was four years ago. That was in uh, 2006. So that was quite an eventful year for us. We indeed had had meetings in New York City and Long Island, and we had traveled uh, almost coast to coast. Our, the furthest west was Yuma, Arizona, which is the hot spot of the nation, the extreme southwest corner of Arizona, next to California. And it was a memorable year, and we traveled in that van that we wore out, and we were here and many other places, and we were just having a great time of our life and uh, seemed to enjoy the response of, of so many people. But after we were here four years ago in the spring, and we went uh, through the summer, we went through the fall, and we finally got home. It was December 17th of that year. We're now finally home, for, and we're off the road, and it's 
cantata time. Every independent fundamental Baptist church did their Christmas cantatas on December 17th of that year. So we went to see one of our friends do their Christmas cantata. And if you look at the picture of the people sitting down here, there's a lady there, that's Betty. And the guy that's got his arm around her, that's me. And we were sitting in that little church, watching, enjoying their Christmas cantata with some of our friends. And unknown to us that while we were sitting there in church that night, our house was broken into by a group of thugs. And we got home that night to find that our house was broken and house was ransacked, torn up. Uh, dollar value, not, we are not wealthy, but by the time you count up all the damage that was done, it was $10,000. And the thing that was uh, most vital to us was all my computer equipment was taken. You say, well, why didn't I have a backup? I did. Why didn't you leave it somewhere else? We did. We left it at home when we were on the road, but now we're all back home again, you see. Internet backup hadn't come into play yet. And I don't know how that strikes you. A few people have figured out what that means, but all of our financial records were in there. All of our music was in there. In fact, everything you're seeing tonight, plus all the other oogles and boogles of material that we have, was made portable by putting it in that laptop and in our external hard drives. Calendars were in there. Our, our office on the road was there. and Many, many years of work were gone. I had developed uh, bronchitis while we were out in uh, Hagerstown, Maryland, and I wasn't shaking it. I was on my third prescription and went to the doctor. The doctor said, this doesn't make any sense. Let's take an x-ray. doctor came back, and you should have seen the look in the doctor's eyes. The doctor says, I don't know, but says there may be something going on. I, th- I, I don't know what to do. The doctor decided to send me along to a specialist, and I got passed along from one specialist to another to another, and... Uh, Before I knew it, I found myself in a cancer center being treated for Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is cancer of the lymph node system. And within two weeks, all of life and ministry was, folks, it was just shut down. As I faced uh, a good period of time undergoing chemotherapy and radiation. I want you to know that this is all new here. And I'm still kind of recovering, but you should have seen me even a few months ago. And I know what it's like to be faced with an absolutely um, mount, impossible mountain to climb, to go through this and to somehow ask God for rebuild health and to reestablish a ministry. And I started having some questions. And I wondered, Lord, am I being punished? I thought maybe God is redirecting my life. And others would ask me that. And pastors would ask me, Paul, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I said, the Lord led us here and along this path. The only thing I know to do is somehow get back on the path and see if God gets us going again. I thought maybe I should have done things differently and I put myself on a guilt trip. I thought, am I going to have to carry these burdens forever? Will I never get over the extreme fatigue that overtakes you? Those that have gone through cancer treatments know what that's like. 
I thought maybe God's got greater plans for me, and I started to fantasize about maybe God's going to give me a national coast-to-coast television ministry. (laughs) (laughs) Nah. But most of all, I thought, why did it have to happen to me, too? I I, I did want to mention this. You know, along the way that uh, God used a lot of a lot of key people during that time to encourage us and the phone would ring and one day I was sitting uh, on our living room couch I could hardly sit up in those days and I, I, I recognized the voice immediately Jason Adams I don't know if you've ever met Jason Adams or not but Jason started calling, started email how you doing Paul? A few weeks later, say, "Hey, I haven't heard from you. How you doing?" And I hardly sit about a typewriter type. I mean, the, the, the computer. And Jason keeps keep me on track. And uh, it was from that thought that I thought I better get an email list going because people are wondering how I'm doing. And so, uh, I think about 300 people are on my email list. I don't know if anybody read them or not, but they wonder how we're doing, how our ministry's going. And I tell people we're going to be at uh, Grace Baptist Sheraton. And I say, you pray for us because I want to have the power of God in the meeting that Sunday night. And anybody can have a ministry. I had a lot of questions that kind of went on. And I believe that Louisa Steed had a lot of questions too. And I have good reason to think that perhaps she went to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 which says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. Sometimes, folks, we just don't have any reason why we're in the difficult situation. But we can do this, that in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. I do know this. I'm getting ahead of the story a little bit. Louisa did meet another fellow. He was a missionary to Spain, and she found her life dream fulfilled. She became a missionary. But no doubt after the events on Long Island Sound in which she lost her husband, a few days later there was a funeral. There's not much else written about Louisa Steed. I've told you about anything any, anybody ever knows. But there's a little bit more to the story, and that is Louisa Steed has left her life testimony in our hymn book. And we'd like to play for you her life testimony. I hope it's yours as well, because it is based upon Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6. For she wrote, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." A few weeks later, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know the saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more.
Well, we're nearing the home stretch, and some of you are saying hallelujah, all right? <laughs> but there is no problem for God, too hard for God to solve. There's no problem that's bigger than God, folks. And we need to allow God to work outside the box because God is not limited to my human understanding and knowledge and circumstances. He has greater ability than all my creativity and he has greater opportunity than, than all of my openings. And we find even the book of, of uh, Acts where uh, uh, there was the Ethiopian eunuch and he needed somebody to come and lead him to the Lord. I won't read the passage, but perhaps you're familiar with it that God sent along Philip and just at the right time, God had Philip there to lead the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. And there was no problem that was too great for God. God could bring somebody along just at the right time. And perhaps you know somebody that needs to be the Lord, to know the Lord. You know what you can do? You can pray that God will bring somebody into their path to lead them to the Lord. You can do that. But for the fifth time tonight, our last time, is there anything too hard for the Lord, congregation? What is it? There is nothing too hard for me. Well, very good. Well, I'm going to close, though, with this story, the story of Eugene Clark. Chicago, Illinois. Eugene uh, had a really, really hard home life. His dad wasn't good to him at all. His dad made him take piano lessons. And he said, if you learn so many lessons by the end of the summer, I'm going to get you a brand new bicycle. And most people in churches don't know what bicycles are anymore. I understand this church has a little better idea what bicycles are. <laughs> All right? And uh, there you see a picture of young Eugene uh, with his prized possession, the bicycle that he earned from learning so many piano lessons from his dad. Uh, but he continued with his piano lessons, and he... he uh, Came to know the Lord when he was only in the sixth grade, but when he was a teenager, he started uh, playing around and kind of devising little courses. And off he went to college, and he attended the Moody Bible Institute in the Windy City of Chicago. Upon graduation, he married uh, the, 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 his bride, and uh, on August 1st, 1955, they were as one, and they went off to serve the Lord together. And Eugene's first job was at Back to the Bible radio broadcast in Lincoln, Nebraska. I don't know if some of you remember that. Some of us do. I remember on Sunday mornings we would attend church before we ever left the house. And we would listen to uh, uh, Dr. Theodore Epp, and we would listen to uh, Dr. Charles Fuller, and we would listen to Dr. DeHaan and those radio preachers of that day. And we would preach too long before we ever left for church that Sunday morning. But Eugene Clark uh, was the music director for that live radio coast-to-coast broadcast in those days. And he would uh, play the accompaniment on the organ as that broadcast would go out live throughout the United States. There you see the, the broadcast choir. And Eugene Clark is over in the extreme left side uh, playing for it on the organ. Well, time came and they started raising a family, had two boys and a girl. And Eugene continued to, to serve the Lord. But someplace along the line, he started to develop some health problems. And he had uh, 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 a disease that uh, affected his eye, very painful, and then a glaucoma. And then he uh, took on a separate uh, un, uh, disconnected disease, but it was crippling arthritis. Well, he continued to serve the Lord, although the pain started to set in and the disabilities came in and so forth. But he continued to write his songs, and he was very prolific. And he wrote over 100 gospel songs and some missionary cantatas and other things. A lot of LP recordings in those days, as we remember those. 
But Eugene Clark, in spite of the fact that he's fighting such serious physical difficulties, continued to serve the Lord in such a way. By now, the, the, the eye problem and the, uh, the, the crippling arthritis is starting to take its toll on Eugene. And he's bedridden most of the time. He finds it difficult to communicate. But his wife is holding a plaque. It is a plaque for the, his alumni awarded on him the Alumni of the Year Award. And there I have a copy of the letter. Uh, I'll make it a little bit easier here for you to, to read the letter. But it goes, but the letter, uh, the, but he wrote a letter back to his alumni. And the letter from Eugene back to his, his alumni class said this. Dear fellow alumni, since it is not physically possible for me to be with you for Alumni Day this year, I was most delighted by the invitation to come by proxy by sharing with you a new song. I hope this song and the scripture promises upon which it is based will come to mean as much to you as it has to me. It is affectionately dedicated to all former students who have left the hallowed halls of Moody to serve the Lord who said, Is there anything too hard for me? Sorry, folks, I just know where the story's going. Eugene Clark thanked his classmates by writing a new song. Based upon Jeremiah 32, Behold, I am the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? You now see a picture of uh, Eugene and his family that's now grown up, his two boys and his daughter and his wife. And you see Gene, who is totally blind and who has completely been overtaken by crippling arthritis. And if you study that photograph enough and you see Eugene Clark, you can see his shoulder. And if you follow his shoulder down to his elbow and you follow his slender elbows out to his wrists, and then you can see enough of his hand to realize that Eugene Clark will never play the organ again. Yet he still continued to serve the Lord, and it was in that state that he wrote the song for his alumni class. How did he do it? Somebody figured that if you can take a recorder, put a voice activation on it, have a voice-activated recorder, when you speak, the recorder turns on, and when you cease to speak, the recorder stops. And he was composed the song in his mind, and he would start to dictate the song note by note, measure by measure, rhythm by rhythm, syllable by syllable into that voice-activated recorder. And somebody would take that recording and transcribe it back into our standard music notation that we find in the hymn book, play it for Eugene, he would make any corrections, and then they would publish it. What amazes me is not the feat of what he did. What amazes me is the message that he wrote. As we conclude our service, I would like to sing the song, and I would like you to sing the song that he wrote that year. For he wrote, I read in the Bible the promise of God that nothing for him is too hard. Impossible things he has promised to do if we faithfully trust in his word. It's not a song that's found much in hymn books. This hymn book has the chorus of it only, but at least we got that. How many are familiar with the song? I want you to know, if you know it, sing it out. It is very singable. If this is your first time, you're going to catch on like lightning onto this. 
Would you stand with me, please, and sing it? Lift it up. to Give us a few measures, ma'am, over there. Go ahead and give a little concert, all right? That's the triumphant chorus. And the verse goes a little slower, all right? Try it with me. Here we go. Ready? I read in the Bible. But would you take the matter to God? And can we not covet it together, folks, to not only pray for these things, but pray for each other that God would have his way? Maybe there's somebody that you love that God needs to save. Maybe there's a financial need. Maybe there's a relationship need. But whatever it is, there's a difficult situation and you need to take it to God. I'm going to ask our pastor to come and close the service. There's no doubt, Pastor, there's people here that uh, need prayer, need to take the matter to God, and need some victories won.